Today, in our study, we come to two verses that constitute the theme of the whole letter. And you may think it's strange that a letter would even have a theme or have a thesis. But again, though this is a letter directed to a specific church with members, some of whom Paul knew, most of whom he didn't, it is nevertheless the closest thing we have from Paul to a systematic expression of the message that he had been entrusted to proclaim. His responsibility as an apostle to the Gentiles was to go and preach the gospel. And so in Romans, he explains that gospel. He elaborates on it in some detail, more so than in many of his other letters. It's a valuable thing to read through the book of Romans and to reread it and to do it again and again and again in order to understand the flow of Paul's thinking. One of our members who is doing this since we began this study, who's been reading it and rereading it, listening and re-listening to it, told me last week that in doing so, she's begun to see the flow of Paul's argument. And as she's describing it, she said, it's just brilliant. And it is. It's brilliant. Because you see how Paul understands the revelation of what God's done for us in Jesus And the pains to which he goes to explain that so that you and I can understand that as well. He forcefully sets forth his case of the good news of salvation that God has provided in his son. And at the outset of making his case, he announces the theme. He summarizes his thesis. And he does that in the first chapter in verses 16 and 17 which is our text for today. After giving his introductory comments, Paul comes to lay out the basis on which he's going to write everything else in this letter. So if you've not taken a copy of God's Word and opened to Romans 1, 16 and 17, let me encourage you to do so now. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll find this on page 939. 939. I want to read these two verses to get them before us, to show the way that Paul, even in announcing his theme, presents an argument. He presents a case that he intends for us to understand and to follow as we launch into the rest of the book. So hear the word of God from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel saves everyone who believes by granting them righteousness. That's what Paul's thesis is for this letter. It's what he wants us to understand as he expounds upon these two verses in the rest of the letter. Even in these two verses, even in this this theme that Paul establishes in the two verses, we find the method of his argumentation. He employs the little word for three times to explain his meaning, to give further insight to that which he is arguing about, arguing for. You look at verse 16 and you see that It starts with this little word for, indicating that what Paul has just said, he's now about to explain further. So if you look at verses 14 and 15, he said, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. 
So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now why is Paul eager to fulfill this obligation of preaching the gospel to those who are in Rome? Verse 16 tells us. For, here's why. Because, he says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it. The reason he's eager to preach the gospel is because he's not ashamed of the gospel. Well, then if you look at the ongoing message of this one verse, in verse 16, look what he says in the middle of it. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Again, there's that word for. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for, because, here comes his reason, the gospel, he says, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So we see his argument. I'm eager to preach. Because I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God for salvation. Well then, how does Paul know that it's the power of God for salvation? Verse 17, there's that little word again. For, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So do you see Paul's mind? Do you see the way he's arguing? Do you see how he's laying out his case? We want to follow the way Paul has actually established his thesis in looking at these two verses this morning. So we're going to take those little word four, that little word four, and the three times that it's used as explanation and zero in on each one of those points. The first one teaches us that Christians should never be ashamed of the gospel. Paul's eager to preach the gospel because he's not ashamed of the gospel. You know, fear of being ashamed will paralyze you. Fear of being embarrassed will keep you from doing things that you even are under obligation to do. In verse 15, Paul said it, that he was eager to preach the gospel. And the reason that he's eager to preach and not hesitant is because he's not ashamed of this gospel. Shame inhibits you from doing what you ought to do. We see this from the very beginning of humanity. Adam and Eve were in the garden with God, living with God without any kind of barrier in their relationship. But when they sinned, what did they do? They went and hid. Why? Because they were ashamed. They were embarrassed. They no longer wanted to be in the presence of God. Adam and Eve had good reason to be ashamed because they had shamefully sinned against their Creator, their Father, the One who had provided them this incredible place to live and given them so much and it restricted them only with regard to eating the fruit of one tree. When we violate God's law, when we sin, it's right to feel ashamed. I hope that you will never lose your ability to blush to be embarrassed, to be ashamed of sinning against God. But there's another kind of shame that can come against us, can be put on us, that is really false shame. It's shame that arises from the opinions and judgments of other people against us that have nothing to do with whether or not we've sinned or obeyed God. It's that embarrassment that comes when people ridicule you. Or look down on you for some reason. Something you do or don't do. Or something you have 
or don't have. This fear of being embarrassed, disgraced, ridiculed in the eyes of others, that's what Paul's talking about here. And he says, with regard to the gospel, I don't have any of that. I'm not ashamed of that which other people might find reason to ridicule. The temptation to be ashamed of the gospel is real. If you've never felt it, you've never experienced that temptation, then it may not be simply because you're so full of the Spirit. Listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. He says, if you have never known this particular temptation, then it's probably due to the fact not that you're an exceptionally good Christian, but that your understanding of the Christian message has never been clear. If you've never been ashamed of the gospel, you've never been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel in any circumstance, well, it, it could be that you're that spiritually strong and rigorous, but it's more likely that you just haven't really taken note of what it is you are proclaiming when you proclaim the gospel. You haven't thought deeply about what the message of salvation is, what the gospel is, how to get right with God, what we say, what the Bible teaches is necessary in order for you to be right with God. What is the gospel? Well, it's the message of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus, right? You know how we teach it here. Who He is, what He's done, why that matters. The gospel's the message that God has a son that he sent into the world to become a real man. A God-man. Completely God, completely man. And that he lived a life of obedience to God's commandments, earning righteousness as a man. And then he voluntarily laid down his life on a cross so that he was crucified. His hands and feet were nailed. Blood came out of him. His side was pierced with a spear, blood came out of his side. He actually died on a cross, a horrific death. And then three days later, he was raised from the dead, never to die again. Now, that's the essence of the gospel. That's what we preach and teach. We declare that this is the way God saves sinners. And that this message is only for sinners and that everybody is a sinner. So our gospel message says to people, you've rebelled against God. It says to people what Adam said in his testimony. It took the death of God's own Son to save a person like you. The, the Gospel teaches us that by nature, because of sin, we have all rebelled against God. And we deserve His judgment. We deserve His wrath. If God gave us what we deserve right here in this room today, we would be having this service in hell. Because that's what sin deserves. Sin against God. Because of sin, people live under God's wrath. This message of the Gospel is an exclusive message. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, nobody comes to the Father except through me. It's exclusive. You can't believe the gospel and say all roads lead to heaven. You can't believe the gospel and say, well, you've got your religion, I've got mine. If you believe the gospel, you have to say like Peter said before those Jewish leaders in Acts 4, there's salvation in no one else. 
And there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved except the name of Jesus. He's the only way. This is the only saving message. No wonder many find this message when it is clearly understood and clearly taught to be scandalous. The Jews found it scandalous in Paul's day. God, the exalted God, becoming a man and being crucified? How dare you speak about God like that? Well, there are people today who find it equally scandalous. A stumbling block that they just can't get beyond. People like our Muslim friends who have an exalted view of God as this transcendent being, but the idea that He became a man, the idea that the God-man was crucified, that's blasphemous in Islam. People who have regard for uh, understanding of God as, as being something completely different than the God of the Bible, like our Mormon friends, our Jehovah's Witnesses friends, like those people who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. I'm spiritual. I'm spiritual. I, I have a spiritual sense. I have a relationship with God. But it's not this God. It's not the God who has a son who came into the world and lived and died for sinners and says, if you don't go through me, you don't get God. Whatever spirituality you have is not one that will do you any good on the day of judgment. See, the gospel is still a scandal when we rightly understand it. Some people just regard it as foolishness. That's what was true of the Greeks. In Paul's day, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 1, to the Jews, stumbling block, to the Greeks, foolishness, including many of those Greeks that lived in the capital city of Rome. They're like the skeptics of our day. The secularists, the agnostics, the atheists. As I've had said to me, you may have had said to you, I don't want any God that has to have somebody die for me. I don't believe in your little God. I'm not interested in your little religion. Go practice your little religion. I believe in science. I've been taught to think freely. I don't need a crutch. And this message that we are all under sin and therefore under God's wrath and we need to be rescued from wrath, we need to be saved, that message is foolishness to them. Brothers and sisters, this is why we need to be clear on the gospel. We need to be sure of what the Bible teaches and so clear that we understand the temptation to be ashamed of it. We understand that it's going to be foolishness to some people. It's going to be scandalous to other people. And we realize that when we explain the gospel as clearly as we should, and people understand it, that some are actually going to revile it. We need to be clear about what we understand the Bible to teach about the condition of people who need it. <clears throat> about what it is that those of us who believe it actually are staking our lives on. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. Neither should we be. We should be clear on the gospel. We should, having staked our lives on the gospel, be willing to declare that gospel without embarrassment and without shame. 
Paul goes on to say the reason that he's not ashamed of the gospel. He says, because the gospel saves. For it is the power of God for salvation. You see that in the middle of verse 16. It is the power of God. Power. The the original word Paul used is dunamis. You can hear our word dynamic in it. The gospel is this dynamic activity that brings about change in a person. The gospel has a dynamis about it. It's the power of God. Divine power, heavenly power, sovereign power. Paul had witnessed the power of the gospel. He'd witnessed it in his own life when he was going to Damascus to imprison and kill Christians before he was one. Because he thought that message is scandalous. He thought this is crazy talk. And so he's going to arrest Christians and on the way, Jesus meets him. And Jesus knocks him to his knees and blinds him. And Paul begins to understand that he had staked all of his religious life upon something that was wrong. When his spiritual eyes were opened and he said, Lord, he bowed to Jesus as Lord, he began to experience the power of the gospel. His life was transformed. From a rising star in Judaism, he became a Christian and an apostle and a missionary and an evangelist for Jesus Christ. He saw this same power manifested in the lives of others as he crossed the Roman Empire, preaching and teaching the gospel. When the gospel was received and believed, people were changed. He saw that in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, when he writes to the church, it was planted there after he had preached the gospel to people who believed that gospel. Listen to the way he describes them. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do you know that, Paul? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And then later he says, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. Power. Here are these pagans worshiping little carved images. And now they're worshiping the true God through faith in Jesus Christ. How do you explain that? The gospel is the power of God to save. He saw that when he went to Corinth. It's been 18 months preaching the gospel in Corinth. And Corinth was a city like San Francisco or Las Vegas or Amsterdam today, where sin is on display and celebrated. And yet when Paul writes back to the church of Corinth, listen to what he says to them in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. He says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a list, isn't it? But then he says, and such were some of you. They were. But, he says, you've been washed. You have been sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. What happened? The gospel happened. 
The power of God happened through the message of what He's done for sinners. They believed it and they were completely transformed. They're no longer the way they were because God came to them. The gospel is not advice. It's not just good information. It's not self-help. The gospel is power. It doesn't just have power. It is power. The power of God. So when the gospel is preached, it's not just a lecture. It's not just somebody giving a talk. When the gospel is preached, the power of God is at work. Listen to what Leon Morris writes about this. He says, when the gospel enters anyone's life, it is as though the very fire of God has come upon him. There is warmth and light in his life. Brothers and sisters, isn't that your testimony? Can't you say that, yes, because of the gospel, I'm not the way I used to be? Because of the gospel, my life is lived differently than it would be lived otherwise? If you're a Christian, this is true of you. He has done this. He has come and turned you into someone who now notices, loves, acknowledges, bows to, trusts Jesus Christ. He did that by unleashing the power of His gospel in your life. The gospel is the power of God that Paul says brings salvation. The power of God for salvation. Salvation, deliverance, rescue, being saved from something for something. It saves us from sin because sin enslaves us. It saves us from hell because that's our destiny apart from salvation. But you know what the gospel saves us from preeminently? It saves us from God. God saves us from Himself. From His just wrath against our sin. By giving up His Son so that Jesus comes and takes our place and God executes our sins in Jesus so that His wrath is carried away from us. And He saves us for Himself so that we become His people. We relate to Him as our Father. The Gospel brings this deliverance, this rescue. You notice what Paul says. This gospel is available for everyone. To everyone. It's a universal message. It's not limited to anybody. Any one group of people. Children, listen to me. Children, young people, listen to me. The gospel is not just for adults. It's not just for people who have reached a certain age. It's for you. You need the gospel. It's not just for men. It's not just for women. It's not just for Americans. It's not just for one race or one ethnicity. You see what Paul says? For everyone. To everyone. So what this means, friend, is it's for you. You may have come here this morning thinking, well, you know, I'm not religious. I'm not going to be religious. I got good news for you. The gospel's for unreligious people. It's for everyone, Paul says. It can save everyone. Have you ever let your mind wander and you, you begin to think thoughts like this? Well, you know, the gospel's for certain types of people. It's for good people. I'm not a good person. 
It's for people who haven't done too many bad things. I've done so many bad things. It's for people who like to go to church. I don't like to go to church. And so you just kind of marginalize yourself and insulate yourself from the gospel. Friend, the Bible says the gospel is for you. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone. It can save you. It can change you. It's universal. But it's also exclusive. Because though the gospel can save everyone, the gospel doesn't save everyone. It only saves those who believe. To everyone, Paul says, who believes. Though Jesus has done everything necessary to save anyone, the gospel does not save unbelievers. It's only those who turn from their sin and trust the Lord Jesus. Paul says this is true for everybody. Jew first, also for the Greeks. And this is just a, another way of saying everybody because you are either a Jew or not a Jew. A Jew or a Gentile in Paul's day. That's how the world was divided up between those who were in the Jewish clan and those who were outside the Jewish clan. But Paul also here is speaking of God's priority, how God chose to reveal His saving message from Old Testament times into the New Testament times. He began with a certain people group. He called Abraham the first Jew who was a Gentile before he made him a Jew. And he establishes him as the head of this race, this Jewish race. And he uses that particular people group to give his promises to, to give his covenants to, to teach the gospel to, through all the types and shadows of the Old Testament religion, all pointing to Jesus Christ, so that not just the Jews can be saved, but Gentiles as well. And so an acknowledgement of God's priority, Jew first, and then Greeks, Paul is simply knowing and expressing how God has done it throughout history. He's always also saying that the only way that anybody will ever be saved is through the gospel. It doesn't matter what kind of religious background you have. The gospel saves everybody who believes. Everyone who trusts Christ as Lord. Everybody who bows to Him. Everybody who acknowledges that He is God's only way of salvation. Everyone who receives Him and welcomes Him as Lord of life. And so my question to you this morning is, are you trusting Jesus Christ today? Can you say, Christ is my Lord? Can you say, the power of God has come to me by this gospel because Jesus is my Lord today? Are you counting on Jesus to save you from God's wrath? Are you counting on Him for the forgiveness of your sins that you've committed against God? If not, then friend, today, today's the day of salvation. Today God's brought you here to hear this message that explains the gospel that is the foundation of this book of Romans so that you might realize the gospel's for you. It's for you. Believe it. Trust it. Take God at His word. And have faith in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to trust Christ? It's not some activity that you do. It's not some work that you accomplish. It is simply taking God at His Word. Believing the truth about Christ. Believing the truth about yourself. Believing that God will do what He says He will do. And bowing yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord. Will you do that?
Will you receive Christ? If you're willing to have Christ as your Lord, God will accept you for Christ's sake. And He'll save you. And you'll experience His power of salvation today. Listen to what Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says about faith that receives Christ. He says, faith is not a blind thing. For faith begins with knowledge. It's not a speculative thing. For faith believes facts of which it is sure. It's not an unpractical, dreamy thing. For faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. Spurgeon goes on to describe faith as the eye that beholds Christ. The hand that reaches out and takes Christ. The mouth by which we feed upon Christ. You see, faith is not something that we add to what Jesus has done. Faith is the reception of what Jesus has done. Salvation is all of grace. You can't do anything to earn it. You can't do anything to deserve it. You can only receive it by faith. By committing yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord. Becoming His disciple. Taking Him at His word. So again, I want to plead with you. I want to ask you, are you trusting Christ? If you're not trusting Christ, why in the world not? What keeps you from acknowledging the truth of what God says in His Word? Don't you believe God tells the truth? Don't you believe He'll accept you? Then humble yourself. Receive Him. Call Jesus Christ Lord. Christians should never be ashamed of the Gospel because it is the Gospel that saves it's, the God, it's God's power of salvation. Paul goes on in verse 17 then to give further explanation of how this works. He's not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And he knows it's the power of God for salvation because the gospel saves by granting righteousness. You see that? The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Not just the righteousness that God is, but the righteousness that God gives. Not just His character as holy and righteous, but His provision of righteousness that every one of us needs and cannot supply. The revelation is completely by faith, Paul says. From faith, for faith, our ESV versions say. This seems to be Paul's way of speaking idiomatically of faith from first to last. That's what the New International Version actually, how it translates this phrase. By faith from first to last. Righteousness received from God by faith continues to be working for us in faith. In other words, the righteousness that God gives can be received exclusively by faith. I'm confident this is what Paul means by the way that he cites the Old Testament passage, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 which interestingly is used three times in the New Testament, this same verse. Paul cites it here, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. If you go back to Habakkuk and you read the first chapter and the second chapter and you zero in on verse 4 that Paul quotes, you'll see that Habakkuk puts two different types of people in contrast to each other. There's the just one, the righteous one, who by faith will live. And then there's the one who will not trust God and who he describes as puffed up, the puffed up man, the arrogant man. The believers contrasted to the prideful man. 
And those are really the only two options you have today. Today, you can either take God at His word, which is have faith. Or you can decide that you have reasons not to take God at His word, which is arrogance and pride. It's to be puffed up. If you reject what God says in His word, then you are dependent upon yourself rather than God. Though you may never say these words, let them cross your lips. In essence, what you're saying is, I am wiser than God. I'm more trustworthy than God. I should depend upon myself more than God. Verse 17 is an explanation of how the good news of salvation works, how the gospel works, how it actually saves. And at the heart of that explanation is this phrase, the righteousness of God. This is a fundamental concept in Paul's explanation of the gospel of God's grace. He uses the word righteousness 34 times in this letter to the church at Rome. Eight of those times are direct references to the specific righteousness of God. You'll never appreciate the gospel or understand how it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe unless you understand this concept of righteousness and especially this phrase, the righteousness of God. This is the phrase that stumped Martin Luther for years in the 16th century. Before he became a Christian and through him God ignited what we call the Protestant Reformation that has changed the world through the spread of the gospel. Luther was a Roman Catholic monk. He was a professor in a university. And he had to lecture through the book of Romans and the book of Psalms. And as he was studying Romans, this phrase, the righteousness of God, it just haunted him. It caused him to, to stop and to stumble and it robbed him of sleep. After God taught him the truth about it, this is what he wrote in the preface to his commentary on Romans. Luther said, I had conceived a burning desire to understand what, God, what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans. But thus far there had stood in my way, not the cold blood, heart, cold blood around my heart, but that one word, which is in chapter 1. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. That's verse 17. Listen to what Luther said. I hated that word, the righteousness of God, which I'd been taught to understand as that justice by which God is just and by which He punishes sinners and the unjust. So every time he saw the righteousness of God in Romans, in the Scripture, he just saw God high and exalted over him righteously judging everyone who is sinful. And he couldn't stand that thought. He goes on, but I, blameless monk that I was, felt that before God, I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. His, his teachers kept telling him, look, you're a holy man. You do everything that the church tells you to do. You have no reason to have a guilty conscience. But Luther was too honest for that. He kept looking at what God requires, God's righteousness, and he kept being honest about himself, and he knew he didn't measure up. And so every time he saw the righteousness of God in Scripture, it just felt like a, a crushing weight coming upon him. He knew, he said, that I was under God's judgment. He said, I constantly, you know, he said, I could not be sure that God was appeased by my satisfaction, all the stuff he did as a monk. I did not love, no, rather I hated the just God who punishes sinners. 
I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to their context. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the righteousness of God is that by which the just person lives by a gift of God that is by faith. I began to understand that this verse means that the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. But it is a passive justice, that by which the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. Luther said, I got it. And he says, all at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through the open gates. Immediately I saw the whole of Scripture in a different light. This phrase of Paul was for me the very gate of paradise. I long for this phrase of Paul to be the gate of paradise for every one of you in this room. I long for you to see what Luther saw. What Paul experienced so that you too may experience what it means to be made right with God not on the basis of what you do but on the basis of what Jesus has done. I long for you to look to God and to realize that He's not only the righteous judge who will judge all sin but the righteous judge who has judged sin in His Son so that all who believe in His Son can be adopted into His family. Forgiven. Declared righteous. On the basis of Jesus Christ. You can know this. You can experience this when you turn from your sin and you trust Jesus Christ as Lord. So our problem is that by nature we're sinners. Another way of saying this is that our problem is a righteousness problem. God requires it. We don't have it. We desperately need it. and We can't get it. But what God requires, He gives. And He gives it by sending His Son into the world to do everything necessary, everything you and I are obligated to do. See, righteousness requires that there be no sin, no violation, no falling short of God's commandments. And it also requires that anytime there is violation of God's commandment, there be eternal punishment. And Jesus has done both. He has earned righteousness. So the problem that we have has a solution in Jesus Christ. But it's only as you turn from your sin and trust Christ that you receive the blessings of God, the power of God to save you. You receive the righteousness that He needs. Our sin keeps us from ever being acceptable to God. This is why Paul, immediately after this thesis in verse 17 and 16, he starts in verse 18 to elaborate what it means to be sinful before God. And so from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way down to chapter 3, verse 20, he explains universal sinfulness. Everybody under condemnation because everybody in sin. Listen to the way he summarizes that argument in Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. 
He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Left to ourselves, there's no hope. If we have to earn it ourselves, we can never be good enough for God. But the good news is that in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, God's provided righteousness. The very righteousness that we need, He gives. The very righteousness He requires, He provides. He earned it. Jesus did. And by grace we receive it when we trust Him. So while there's no hope in ourselves, we can ever attain righteousness before God As Paul goes on to put it in Romans 3 when he starts explaining justification in verses 21 and 22, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from our works. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Old Testament taught it, Habakkuk taught it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the law of God with its twofold demands, perfect righteousness, punishment for unrighteousness, has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. And you can get what He has done credited to you, not by doing anything, not by trying harder, but by believing. The righteous, by faith, shall live. So if you trust Jesus Christ as Lord, you'll live. You'll be declared righteous by God because He'll give you the righteousness that Jesus earned. You've never trusted him before, trust him now. And walk out of this room today justified before God on the basis of what Jesus has done. Brothers and sisters, this is how God saves sinners. It's through the gospel. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what he has done in saving us by this gospel, he can do for others. And don't you want to see other people be brought into this saving relationship with God? Don't you want to see other people have God's power working in them to transform their lives? That can happen. It does happen. It happens through the gospel. So grow in your understanding of the gospel. Go deep in recognizing what God has done for us in Christ. Don't ever stop learning and thinking about it and turning it over in your mind and submitting your thoughts to the Scriptures so that you will more and more come to just glory and wonder in what God has done to save you and what belongs to you in Jesus Christ. Revel in this Gospel. Let it wash over you again and again and again. Be stunned at the reality that God accepts you. God accepts you because of Jesus. And what Jesus has done can never be added to or diminished. So what you do can never separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your salvation is secure. Your righteousness that God requires of you is in heaven because Jesus earned it and He holds it safely for you. Nothing can take God's grace from you. So follow after the one who shed His blood for you. Live for Him. Hope in Him. Repent quickly and confidently because of Him and trust Jesus Christ alone for your righteousness, for your salvation. And commend Him to others.
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for saving us by the work and the life of Jesus. Thank you for keeping us saved through the person and work of Jesus. Thank you for giving us, graciously giving us, freely giving us that which you require of us. I pray that you would show those this morning who are unbelievers, who have not yet bowed the knee to Jesus. God, they came into the room this way. Would you not let them leave until Christ is revealed savingly to them? Do for them what you've done for us. By your Spirit, work deeply into us more and more in awareness and appreciation and love for all that we have in Jesus Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen.